0: Welcome to Play On Nerds, the only podcast that isn't afraid of no ghosts. With me, the man who once refereed a boxing match between Beetlejuice and Freddy Krueger, Ron Raider. Come to Freddy's. It's showtime. Welcome Hello, everyone. Well, around last time we discussed the history of comic books. This time as a special follow-up to that episode, we're going to dive right in and discuss the history of geeky movies, sci-fi, horror, that sort of thing. Sounds good. So, starting with the history of movies, we all know the movies started with the silent era. Prior to full-length feature films, there's a few honorable mentions that I want to talk about. Um, One of which is called The Sealed Room from 1909. It's humorous in some aspects, but it's reminiscent of a Poe-type storyline, if you all give your brief storyline, because it's only like a six-minute long movie anyway, which a lot of the silent era, early silent era, you can see, are only like anywhere from two to six minutes, usually. um, Some very rarely over. But this one in particular, called The Sealed Room, it's about a king who got jealous of his love interest, uh, his lady's love interest, I should say, and... Had him sealed up in a room.
1: Interesting. When you say his lady, was it like his wife, his queen? Queen, consort. Okay. But yeah, it was, okay. like
0: uh, yeah, was just—it was just really neat. To I mean, just—it's it, kind of funny. I say this kind of like you see a lot of in uh, D.W. Griffith movies where you see the actors, like all the actors on stage, if you will, like on set, but it's set like a stage. You remember early days of uh, cinematography. Was basically taking what was on stage and putting a camera as the audience, right? So a lot of the direction was that way. Griffith is infamous for this in his early works. Of you can see everybody on stage looking stage right or stage left at the same time. Like I don't know if somebody was off. was like okay, look left. Oh, okay, we're all going to look left. But in this one, you can definitely see it, and it's somewhat humorous, but it works, and it, it's just a neat, neat film. So it, it is on YouTube. So if you get a chance, check it out. The Sealed Room, it's it, you get a sense of claustrophobia a little bit. And,
1: ah, I bet you know, it was frightening for people back in 1909.
0: Oh, absolutely. So 1909, The Sealed Room, that one's good. The Haunted Manor, or the Le Manor Diable, by Georges Millier. That was considered the first horror movie, so to speak. And Was it full length? It was not full length. It was very, very short. But Millier was known for groundbreaking special effects and in, in cinema for example uh you have the trip to the moon you know he did something like that and I'm sure you've seen clips of that I've not even watched the entire thing yeah that was amazing
1: but I have seen that yeah.
0: it's yeah the the special effects from that you know he he pioneered a lot of special effects this one had like skeletons and ghosts and demons and a and basically, it was a cauldron in the middle of this castle, and all the stuff starts coming out of it. And it's just, it's really neat. It's its a fun watch.
1: I think I've That's seen cool. a clip of that.
0: So, yeah, if it's, if it's the same oh, clip, it is amazing looking. It is very amazing looking, and it's just, it really, it gave me chills the first time I saw it. So I was like, ooh. Like, not scary per se, but it was like, ooh, this is cool, you know. Along the same lines, 1910, um, we're going to skip down for just a moment. Uh, and then we'll come back to the other ones 1910 Frankenstein by Edison Thomas Alva Edison you know phonograph inventor and light bulb inventor and all that his movie studio he actually had a movie studio where he did a few things Frankenstein's probably one of the most famous ones he did
1: did the Frankenstein in that movie look anything like the what we've come to know as the traditional look i guess that might have come come out of the 1950s films
0: well are you talking about Frankenstein the creature Oh, Because Frankenstein's actually the doctor.
1: Interesting. Of course. Who else is Edison going to focus on?
0: Right. It was actually universal. <laughs> and we'll get to that as well. Um, that the creature... Became Frankenstein, basically. Became you know, like the focus. It and... became because the title was Frankenstein, even though, and the focus was the creature. So a lot of people get that mixed up. Total I didn't learn it until a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh wait, no, the creature. So, so when you say Frankenstein from that movie, he didn't look like. I mean, he did because he still had the lab coat and some like goggles. But you know, was the so, monster in that? So film? The, the monster in that, I I couldn't even tell you the guy's name, but I will tell you this: it has one of the best animation sequences I've ever seen caught on film. And I mean, I don't mean animation, like drawing cartoon animation. I mean like reanimating the dead. And it was a little different. It was a little bit in later Frankenstein films, like from 1931 and fifties and so on nineties, even they approach it from a, like a scientific standpoint, I guess uh, with reanimating the dead, you know, this one was scientific Mixed with, like, alchemical and magic a little bit. Mm. You see this huge, like, copper, I guess, vat, or not even a vat, like a, almost like a vault, and it has, like, a window, a view screen on it, and he throws a whole bunch of stuff in, and you see this skeleton in there, like, moving around, and the skeleton, the flesh starts to grow on the bones of the skeleton. And you see this monster come to life through the viewport that, that the, Dr. Frankenstein is seeing at like the audience sees as Dr. Frankenstein, and it is simply amazing. The first time I watched that, I did get freaked out a little. I was like, "Ooh, uh, that's." I wonder scary. if it
1: was a highly successful movie in terms of like ticket sales and whatnot.
0: Then it would have been, yeah. I mean, ticket sale. It was kinetoscope so it was not really ticket sales because prior to movie theaters, they mm-hmm. had Nickelodeons. Yep. And it was one of the best reels in the Nickelodeons as, as well. Uh,
1: do you, just if we could digress for a second. Yeah. How did they make money with those Nickelodeons? Did people, I mean, how was that done? Throw a quarter in or a nickel It was a nickel.
0: Yep. And basically the way it worked was, like, Edison kind of had a corner on the market on the eastern board. Oh, wow. And,
1: why am I not surprised?
0: Right. So basically the way it worked, and that's why he went into filmmaking. Because these Nickelodeons, that's how you made your money. Kind of like, you know, you see the... The Gumball machines outside of supermarkets now, and, and kids go, Oh, Kroger doesn't, or Meyer, or whoever the shopping the grocery store does not own that machine, it's owned by somebody else. They just, you know, allow them and they say, Hey, we'll, we'll rent the space and give you a little bit. But the profits come from the kids getting the gumballs and stuff to the owners of the machine. So that's kind of how Nickelodeon's were at hmm. the time. The machines were owned by Edison Company, and he's like, Hey, we need some quality product to put in these. Let's, you know what, let me open a studio and I'll make my own movies to put in them. That way I'm getting double profit. A genuine financial giant. Do you know, did a single
1: nickel get you the whole product? Mm -hmm. Or did you have to keep feeding it as you went along? Like, oh, I got to see the rest of this, another nickel. No, the
0: nickel would run through the entire product. Oh, okay. And if you wanted to watch it again, you would throw another nickel in there. And that's, they found with certain ones like Frankenstein, I'm sure, People would sit there and watch it a couple times. Like, that was amazing. I want to see it again, you know. Again! Again! So, and it was unique at the time. I mean, no one had ever seen moving pictures before, so. Wow. And that kind of gave rise to the movie theater, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that some other time. But, so, Frankenstein, amazing. It's on YouTube as well. Look it up. The monster, like, you may have seen images of it at some point in the creature. He looks really, I guess by today's standards, he looks a little derpy. <laughs> like he looks, it's wild, whacked, but it is amazing. It is a really good, just fun movie. <laughs> so after that, we get into the longer like feature length films for the silent era because now that they perfected you know 10 years later they've pretty much perfected the the camera and direction and they know you know technology behind it whereas early on it was not always blatant what you know the technology could do for them so some of the first feature length horror movies you have the ca- cabinet of dr caligari have you ever seen that
1: I have not seen it, but I have heard the name before. Oh,
0: my goodness. Okay, so I did a huge article on this a couple times. Actually, I've written a couple articles, and I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty of it, but it is a phenomenal piece that you should sit down and watch sometime and force yourself through to the end. It is one of the best framing devices you've ever seen. I don't really don't want to spoil it for you if you've never seen it, because it still has a surprise ending all these years later. You know, it's... What, 1925, I think, 23, something like that. Anyway, so it's, and as far as a German Expressionist film, it's amazing. Now, I got to step back and explain what German Expressionism is for our listeners and if you don't know. Mm -hmm. So, German Expressionism is a very unique feel and look, Uh, odd angles, long shadows You'll see a lot of it influence some of the earlier horror movies, which we'll get into just in a moment with Dracula and Frankenstein from the thirties. But you also see it in today's movies with Tim Burton movies. You can definitely say, say he is inspired by German expressionism. Um, Architecture plays a big part of it. Set design plays a huge part of it. Have you ever watched the uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow* from the '90s? Oh yeah, yeah. So that right there, the village is a perfect example of German Expressionism. Oh, okay. Like odd roof angles and such. But getting back to the de- the cabinet of Doctor Caligari, it's a nightmare dreamscape world, like with long shadows and stuff. And shadows are actually painted on the floor sometimes, and like windows. There's not one. I can tell you there's not one 90-degree angle in the entire movie. <laughs> like, everything's on odd angles, mm-hmm. and it's really, really well done. Um, it's just first time I saw it, I was kind of blown away by the by the twists at the end, surprise ending, and, and the framing device and everything. I was like, what? So check it out if you haven't. That one, I believe, is on YouTube as well.
1: Is that a silent film?
0: Yes, it is a silent film. But matter of fact, if you can, they have – there's specialized versions that – were redone in the way it was released originally. I never would have thought this. I just learned this like last year. So I was like, wow, that kind of blew my, blew my mind away. This, the ones that they re-release it, when I was growing up, it was only in black and white. You know, silent era movie, black and white, that's it. However, I just learned recently that they had color. And Now, it wasn't colorized in the way we're thinking, but it was tinted with different scenes and different title cards being tinted with different colors based on the scene. Hmm. So that was kind of unique. So if you can find the quote-unquote colorized version, really amazing. So speaking of color, we'll get into this right now, I guess, because this is actually the rise of um, the universal horror. Actually, let's step back and talk about Metropolis because it's a sci-fi geeky movie that's awesome. That's another good one. If you haven't watched it, it's on YouTube as well. Metropolis, it really utilizes people and in mass, I mean, it was huge production at the time. I mean, huge. Thousands of extras, you know, and, and it was just on par with, like, Gone with the Wind and, you know, some of those other classics.
1: With well, that title, it's got to be, right?
0: Yeah, with the Metropolis, yeah. It's just, it was amazing. And I guess socially speaking, it was kind of groundbreaking and really uh, shows the power of the worker and all that stuff. So it was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. We'll put it that way. So get a chance to check it out. It Mainly for the sets and the wide shots of masses of people. And just, again, very groundbreaking at the time. When And back then they built sets. When they built big sets, they were huge. You oh, know? I bet. So with that in mind, we'll move right on to the Rise of Universal Horror with The Phantom of the Opera. First, there was Hunchback of Notre Dame, which did really well with Lon Chaney. And from there... Carl Limley was actually the head of Universal Studios at the time. His son came to him and said, we should do more horror movies. And he's like, ah, I don't know. But Hunchback did really well. And he said, okay, son, well, guess what? Happy birthday. Happy 21st birthday, son. You will now own the studios. Can you imagine being head of a movie studio at 21?
1: No, it sounds fantastic.
0: Isn't it? Isn't it? I like, what?
1: Maybe terrifying, too. Right,
0: right, exactly. But he took a gamble. And he said, yeah, let's do horror movies. And this is, you know, mid to late 20s. And Carly Lemley Jr. decided to fund Phantom of the Opera. With Lon Chaney. A couple of things were groundbreaking. Again, huge sets. I mean, just phenomenal sets. Ensemble piece, amazing. But, I mean, Lon Chaney does an amazing job as Phantom and... It just really, I mean, it's groundbreaking. It's, I guess, epic at this point. You know, it's kind of a a touchstone in our cultural society as, you know, U.S. film now. But then it was groundbreaking because it was actually the first color movie. And when I say color, I don't mean the tint like Caligari had. I mean, there was actually a color sequence with the masquerade ball.
1: Was it also a talkie?
0: It was not a talkie. Oh, no? Okay. No it was completely silent now years later they did release a talkie version except <laughs> it didn't do so well because people were expecting to hear lon Chaney well you know he had throat cancer and he died um mm-hmm. shortly after i mean it was early 30s he passed away but he they didn't have him speak cuz they couldn't they didn't want to insult lon Chaney's legacy and have him speak mm-hmm. you know but everybody else in the movie spoke, <laughs> like, when they re-released it with, as a talkie, you know? And it was like, so the one person who should speak in the movie, the Phantom, doesn't speak. Okay, well. <laughs> so it's, it kind of landed itself to mystery and stuff, but, you know, it was kind of neat. Um, as far as far as reviewing the movies and talking about them, I can go on ad nauseum. But there's plenty of other sites and reviews out there that our listeners can listen to and, and look up if they want in-depth reviews about it and and, you know, plot points and all that sort of thing. But, yeah, Phantom of the Opera, another amazing movie. If you have not watched it, I mean, there's plenty of clips out there, like the unmasking scene. They actually was reports of women fainting in the audience during the unmasking scene. So... Wow. Yeah, they'd have smelling salt standing by and all that such. And, and it, I'm sure at the time it was really spooky and scary, but now we kind of look at it and go, oh, okay. Because <laughs> we've been attuned to some gore and such, but... Well, again, we'll get to that in just a moment. <clears throat> so, right after Phantom, you have the early days of universal horror. This is what everybody seems to remember when you talk about classic horror movies. If I were to mention Dracula, what would you envision?
1: Uh, I envision the classic look. Is it, um, oh gosh, is it Bram Stoker? Is that what it
0: is? Well, that's who wrote, yeah, wrote it. Who wrote
1: it, right? And who's... The-
0: Bela, oh, Bela Lugosi, yeah, Yep, okay. Bela Lugosi. I
1: was getting my B names mixed. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I definitely envision that character.
0: All right, same with Frankenstein. When you when you picture the creature from Frankenstein, what do you picture?
1: Same,
0: same thing. You picture Boris Karloff as the yeah. you know flat top, and, you know, not speaking thing. Which is funny because the book, the creature actually is intelligent and speaks, yes. and it's really well done. If you have not read the book, check it out. But I digress. The movies. Mind-blowing. Dracula and Frankenstein are my favorite all-time horror movies. Just be from a direction standpoint. These early. So, the early ones. ones, They are amazing. I mean, they're definitely within my top five. We'll put it that way. Especially Frankenstein. (laughs) They they just have a unique feel to them. You know, without being... They're more psychological horror, I think than, you know, super scary or, you know, frightening images, but they're just... And I used to watch them before going to sleep, and I have some really weird dreams, <laughs> but but they're really well done, and you could definitely tell it's still the early days, so to speak, of cinema, so you still see, like, Dracula especially was based on the stage play that was a huge success in Broadway, and originally they wanted Lon Chaney to play the role of Dracula, but his voice wasn't quite right, and he had throat cancer and such, so... They took a gamble with Bella Lugosi with a sick accent and such. He seemed to fit. But he had played Dracula on the, in the stage version many years at that point. Oh. You know, and he said, well, if there's anyone who could do it, I can do it. And they're like, done. And it was based on the stage play. And it was – and you could definitely say, see some influence as far as stage staging goes. Between um, Edward Van Sloan played Van Helsing, the old professor. And Bella Lugosi is Dracula. There's some play in between them, like some back and forth at one point. It's just like, oh, it's so well done. Like like there's a point where Van Helsing knows Dracula's a vampire. I mean, he's just that's Van Helsing, right? And he has this mirrored cigar box and he opens it up and Dracula just looks down and smacks it out of his hand with this glare of How dare you? <laughs> and and they don't fight or anything right there and he just like you know, watch your step doctor and walks away. I mean, it's just, is so well done. Mm. And it's like, Ooh. And, and the doctor's like, ah, that, that totally cemented it. He's a vampire. Like he knew right then, like, he's like, I have, I suspect this. Let me try this. And Dracula smacks it out of his hands. Like, how dare you basically. And, and Van Helsing is like, ah, well, thank you. You just confirmed my suspicion, you know? And so it, Dracula 1931, amazing. I see
1: on your list that there's two Draculas. Yeah. Well, so what was different about the Spanish version?
0: Mm. Yeah, so the Spanish version, a lot of times, okay, so back in the early 30s, I mean, even before then, the Spanish market for movies was huge. And, you know, it still is, I'm sure. But, you know, things like Universal, or studios like Universal, would often film a movie during the day, like Dracula or Phantom of the Opera, or whatever. And then in the evening, a different director and and cast and set crew and everything would come in and film the same movie in the Spanish language. Mm. So there is a lot of differences, actually. A lot of people think from a technical standpoint and cinematography standpoint, the Spanish version of Dracula is much better. And it is, when you're talking about that. Acting-wise, I think the English version is better. But the Spanish version, like, there's... There's a scene where Dracula enters the scene for the first time in the movie. He's in his castle, and he appears at the top of the stairs, and you have Renfield at the bottom. And you see this. He's framed by these cobwebs and, you know, big spiders' webs and and such. And you see a bat fly across the screen, and that's the English version, right? And he's like, welcome. I am Dracula. You know, and it's, it's good, you know. But in the Spanish version, you you have the sweeping shot like Renfield's at the bottom of the stairs and the camera starts behind him and sweeps up the stairs from behind him to close in on Dracula. And he says, welcome. I'm Dracula in Spanish, of course. And that sweeping cream technique hadn't been really used that then. And it was like, whoa, that was way cooler. And then at at that point he walks through a spider web and does not disturb it. Like, he's a ghost or something. It's just so cool. Like, it's like, what? Did he just... Wow, okay. So it's just, like I said, technically speaking, much better film. In the English version, you have weird things. Like, in the beginning, you have... They show these crypts and and graves and such, and you see, like, a hand coming out of the coffin and such, and you see, you know, some snakes and scorpions. And, yes, armadillo? There's an armadillo in the shot, for whatever reason, and you're like... Okay, oh, armadillos, those are so scary, you know. (laughs) So I don't know if they were just like, oh, we'll use what we have on hand. Here we go. But from a technical aspect, the Spanish one is much better.
1: I see, you know, I'm looking at your list here, and if I'm counting this correctly, just in four years, 31 to 35, they released 11 movies. So, wow, they were pumping them out.
0: They were really cranking them out. And they, because of the success that they had with them. And like I said, it was a gamble at the time. Carl Emley Jr., he, he tried to convince his dad to do horror, and his dad was like a little standoffish about it. He's like, you know what? Well, for your birthday, I'll just give you the studio. He's like, all right, let's do this. know, let's crank out some movies here. And they did. They cranked out, just run down the list real quick, Dracula, Frankenstein, Murders in the Rude Morgue, The Mummy, Island of Lost Souls, The Invisible Man, Black Cat, Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London, Raven, Dracula's Daughter was in 1936. So... There's actually a very strong theory, again, with comic books, we talked about this, how they seem to reflect the society around them at the time. Absolutely. Right? Part of the reason horror movies were so well-received during that time period, don't forget what happened just two years earlier with the stock market crash. Oh, yeah. Great Depression. This is at the height of the Great Depression, right? Matter of fact, I'm going to get into some fun gimmicks here in a minute but that the theaters used to do, but... A lot of people thought, like, a lot of historians think nowadays that by going to see Frankenstein and Dracula and such, it allowed the people to kind of take their mind off the horrors of reality. You know, it allowed them to just have fun a little bit and and go, wow, okay, I thought I had it bad. Look at that Frankenstein guy. (laughs) You know, so, yeah, that's part of the reason they were probably so successful, you know, that... It was the height of the Great Depression, and some of the gimmicks that theaters used to do during the Great Depression, this is really neat, they would release Dracula. Let's say Universals would re- release uh, Dracula the one week, right? And you'd go, purchase your ticket, and they'd say, oh, well, because you purchased a ticket, here's, you know, a teacup, you know, that you could take home, and it's a nice teacup. And it wasn't, like, themed around Frankenstein or anything. It was a nice decorative teacup or whatever. Then next week, Frankenstein would come out. It was like, oh, well, since you purchased your ticket, here's a plate. And so by the time you purchased a bunch of tickets, you had a whole dinner set. And that's what theaters would do to get people back. Wow. So it was like, well, I have a family of four, so I need to go back and watch Dracula four times. That's okay. I love Dracula. And, you know, so it was was a good deal for the time, you know. Yeah. Hmm. They were really cranking them out at that point, just because they were so successful. And because they were so successful, in the 40s, they re-released them. And I think I'm skipping down just a little bit. But they began re-releasing Dracula and Frankenstein as a double feature. And people would literally line up for miles around the block just to see them. That changed the entire release schedule. Yeah, they were cranking them out. But at that point, they started to go, okay... Let's crank out a lot of sequels and cram as many of these monsters in as we can, even in some Meats movies, which we'll get to that, that in a moment. I don't even have them on the list. So as
1: they started cranking these out in the 40s and doing double features, do you feel like the content suffered, or did it stay high quality?
0: Yes and no. It really depends. I say that, you know, like, for example, they did make a sequel to Frankenstein called Bride of Frankenstein with the same director, same actors, and everything. Amazing. After that, director James Whale said, I'm not going to do anymore. They had to fight to get him back for the sequel of this one. Now, they did make The Son of Frankenstein later on, which actually was, I thought it was pretty decent. Quality-wise, plot-wise, not as good as the first two. The first two was nice because you could put them almost back-to-back, and it makes it seem like one long movie. There's some goofy stuff in there, but, you know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Son of Frankenstein still good but not quite as good, and sometimes they forget certain things from the first movies that happened, and, you know, so, yeah, so they're kind of neat that way, but they really started to see the value of the properties they had on hand. For example, and I have them just like the Ghost of Frankenstein's here, Invisible Agent. Now, beginning in 1943, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, That was when they started to do the crossover, and this is the shared universe before shared universe was the thing, right? (laughs) It was really well done. Like it's just that—I mean, people when they saw the title, they're like, "I'm sold." I mean, that's that sounds epic, and even the posters back then were really epic, and it shows Frankenstein and the Wolfman just fighting and duking it out, and it's like that didn't quite happen in the movie but you know so but it was still really it's still up there it's another touchstone i think in the cinema history if you will
1: i could see you're really into these and a lot of these i've only seen clips from if i wanted to watch these um universals that's probably not a youtube thing or are they on youtube
0: they are not on youtube okay that, to the best of my knowledge anyway so you got to seek those out so through you your gotta pay restrict yep, streamers you gotta seek them out and i do believe oh for a while they were on hbo max but I could okay. be wrong about that. Um, and I have them all in case you want to. We have a movie day. We'll, we'll sit down and watch them. Matter of fact, last, well, no. About two years ago, I decided to set up my projector and screen in the living room. And I turned off all the lights and I used the actual projector. And And there's nothing like seeing these old movies on a, you know, 15-foot screen. Ooh. So it was, it was really cool to see it, like, as it was intended to be, you know. Yeah. So it was really neat. So moving on, you got through the 40s, mid-40s, late 40s, you start to see a slight decline in the monster movies. The ticket sales weren't quite as good. And to bolster sales, they introduced a couple of characters that were very popular in TV and radio at the time, and that was Abbott and Costello. They were super popular, and they agreed to do a Abbott and Costello meet the Frankenstein and meet the Invisible Man. And that's late, early 50s, late 40s. And those are good in their own right. Still utilizing some of the same creatures and such. For sure. A little goofiness here and there. I've seen one of those. Which one did you see? I think it was The Mummy. Okay.
1: Okay. Abbott and Costello meet The Mummy.
0: I prefer the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the first one. Just because it was a shared universe without being, you know... Before shared universes were a thing. Sure. Again, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was it was really well done. Now, if you know, 1954, Universal released Creature from the Black Lagoon. Which that is a
1: film I have seen, too.
0: There's a... It's kind of a classic. considered a classic monster movie. And, you know, it's up there with Frankenstein Dracula and all that. But you could... That was the beginning of the Atomic Age, so to speak. It's a creature, not a, you know, and it just happened to be natural in this, you know. Here's a question for you. Yeah.
1: I've never thought about this before, but obviously Frankenstein, Mummy, Dracula, it's their takes on creatures that have existed for a long time. It wasn't original IP, they just came up with. Right. It was the creature from the Black Lagoon first appeared in this film or was there a version in stories and other um works before that is a
0: phenomenal question matter of fact it is original but like the mummy believe it or not the mummy was original as well
1: oh great
0: but it was based on a ton of other things at the time Um, so
1: influenced by a lot of things influence
0: now remember like in particular for example the mummy it was an original but it was based on some short stories that were in, you know, some of the sci-fi pulp magazines that were out at the time. Yep. But also, don't forget, the Tomb of Tutankhamen was just discovered a couple years before. Oh, that
1: had people's interest.
0: So probably. that really piqued people's interest. Right. So, and the lead actress in it, she was really into it, so to speak. Like, And they weren't even sure if they were going to cast her. And the director didn't really want her.
1: Do you remember who she is? Uh,
0: you know what? I'm gonna look it up right now because the name is, is such an odd name. I thought let's get the research team on this. So we'll get the research team on it because it, I remember the name. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I just it's so unique that I couldn't think of it.
1: yeah these films are de- and you know you were talking about how they had just uh discovered Tutankhamun's tomb well the black lagoon with the creature and the sci-fi stuff that you know that's only what five or so years after the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah so yeah. and we're going to get into that in just a moment as well so Zita Johan is the actress who played in Forest Karloff being the mom. And it was funny because the the posters at the time showed the mummy, you know, all wrapped in bandages. That's what you think of when you think the mummy, right? Right. He spent maybe three minutes on film in the wrappings. (laughs) After that, it was not. But the makeup that they used, it was the same guy who did the makeup for Frankenstein, Mm. right? And it was amazing, groundbreaking at the time. And Zita Johan... One of the things, the director did not want her at first. And she was really into it. And she's like, no, I believe in reincarnation and all this. And she's putting, like, a mystical, religious spin on her character and such. Well, the director invited her over for dinner and said, well, if you want to do this movie, there's going to be several topless scenes. And this is pre-code, right? Right. And she's like, well, I don't have a problem with that. And she takes her top off at dinner and eats dinner with the rest of them for the rest of the meal topless whoa and so he's like all right fine <laughs> and it, like <laughs> she called his bluff right like so i was like wow that's kind of nutty you know like
1: yeah totally
0: yeah it's a, especially at the time you know like wow but he 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 was kind of shocked at the point and his wife was like wow i can't believe she did that you know like <laughs> she's like i don't have a problem with it whatever you know and she was just and you can kind of catch that in her character throughout the movie she ha- she's a very spunky character for lack of a better term just kind of a she has some chutzpah, if you will.
1: That's awesome.
0: So, getting back to some of the your question, you know, that's how the mummy was original, and it was really well done. The creature from Black Lagoon was definitely original, and again, groundbreaking at the time because of all the underwater scenes. Yeah. Matter of fact, the stunt man who played the creature just passed away two weeks ago. Oh wow! So, at the time of recording this, anyway. So I
1: believe I first saw that film. Believe it or not, uh, my elementary school. Had us all in the auditorium and we watched it in there.
0: Wow, really? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's fun. You know, it's a fun, unique movie. But yeah, moving into the 50s, you get into the Atomic Age and Space Age, right? So you see the creature is kind of the beginning of that a little bit, and then you have Revenge of the Creature the next year in 1955. And then The Creature Walks Among Us in 1956 is considered the last of the universal horror movies as far as the classic era is concerned. Now, quick sideline. I just want to say, oops, I just bumped the mic. Um, quick sideline. There is a phenomenal board game called Horrified, which I own, and I, I personally like many different types of board games. That you do, and they, yeah, yeah, I have a lot, but I prefer the board games that I can play solo. Not that I'm a standoffish gentleman by any means, and you know, but a lot of times I found as my kids were growing older, especially. It's like, hey, you guys want to play a board game? No. Hey, do you want to play? And it's just so hard getting schedules together for a game night and such. So I tend to pick board games that I can play solo as well. And Horrified is one of those. The premise is all the monsters from Universal Horror are attacking a village. Hmm. And there's different ways to fight them. And he, depending on what difficulty of the game you want, you can have more or less monsters. You have to have at least two or three, I think but there's a different ways to defeat them. For example, to defeat Dracula, you have to collect a wooden stake, go and destroy the caskets in a crypt and do this other thing, like go and get a silver cross from the the church. So there's these tasks that you have to do to defeat each monster. It makes it difficult because they will if you're if they're near you, they will attack you, you know, and and they move and you have to save villagers at the same time. <laughs> so it's like, oh man. So like most solo board games or co-op games, because it's a co-op game when you're not playing solo mode, it can be very difficult, you know, tough to win. But as far as gameplay goes, it's amazing. Like, it's just whew, so well done. And it has a unique mechanic that will drive you insane and the monsters get frenzied and such, and you can lose just from that. You know? So it's it's really neat sounds cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you play different characters in it, kind of like a role-playing aspect, and different characters can do unique things. Like, for example, there's one that's a pilot, which allows you to move more freely across the board, which is kind of nice. But, you know, things like that, or, or Messenger, maybe. But yeah, it's it's really neat. It's been a while since i played, but it's a really fun game. So there, we got our geekiness in for <laughs> for uh, even talking about the history of the I have to ask movies. one
1: question. Yeah. And it's a slight step back. You say that the um, universal horror films, the classic era ends in 56 with The Creature Walks Among mm-hmm. Us. They were still producing films or after that? Or what, what, what makes that the end? Why is that the cutoff point? Quality dipped? Less films? Went out of business? I don't know any of this.
0: Okay. So that would be the end of the classic horror era, uh, considered by many historians to be the end. Kind of like you have the golden age of comic books okay. and the Silver Age. That's how it it just... So they were still in. out there. They were still out there. Yeah, because we still have Universal now. I mean, they yeah, got the back yeah. to the future. Yeah. They, you know. But in, in terms of quality and horror movies, they really flagged off at that point. Okay. And they started focusing more on other th- projects. So that's why it would be considered the end, because we're starting to move into the Atomic Age, which is the next thing that we're talking about. Which I don't know if you know this about me, Ron. I may have mentioned it on the podcast a few times. I really like kaiju movies. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but I, I love think I remember
1: kaiju you movies. saying that. Yeah.
0: And in particular, earlier ones. Now, back in 1931, 33, they had King Kong. And that was like one of the first kaiju movies, right? Why don't you do- define a kaiju movie for our so, listeners? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I should probably do that because I just didn't think i was drawing a blank i meant to do that so kaiju giant monster that's japanese word for giant monster (laughs) so you have giant monster movies there's king kong classic from the 30s that was a giant ape running amok in new york city so there's more to it than that if you have not seen the entire thing it's amazing now i did i don't know if it's a i'm a victim of the mandela effect but I might be. And for listeners who don't know what the Mandela effect is, it's a alternate universe theory, I guess, that, you know, a mass part of the population will remember something. Whereas other people say it never existed. And if you do your research, it doesn't really say it existed or not. Like there's a, the main example is a Sinbad Genie movie that was on the Disney Channel. And mm-hmm. Sinbad's like, I never made a genie movie, and everybody's like, Oh, you're thinking of the Sha- the movie with Shaq that was a genie called Kazam. He's like, No, 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 Sinbad did make one called Shazam, and everybody remembers. I remember it being on Disney. Like, I remember not watching it, but I remember seeing the commercials for it and stuff. So I'm like, I think it may have existed, but it's one of those situations Disney could have pushed it under the rug because it failed, and you know, like, and a lot of I people thought it existed. It. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people remember it, but you can't find any trace in history. Of this movie existing. Isn't that wild? Another example is Berenstain Bears versus Berenstain Bears.
1: Well,
0: and people go, no, it's always been S-T-E-I-N. And some people say, no, it's S-T-A-I-N. Well, somebody actually posted a-, a picture of two videos that they had, and it was spelled both ways on the two videos. I was like, see, we're both right. But <laughs> So those are Mandela effects. Now, I don't know if I'm a victim of Mandela effect when it comes to King Kong. Because there is... Now it's considered lost. A scene in which there—I don't know if you know the story, King Kong. We'll back it up a little bit.
1: Uh, the original film. Yes, uh, I know I've I've seen it, but I don't remember the details. Okay,
0: so it's they take an excursion to the Skull Island to film an adventure movie. That's pretty much it. And then they come across King Kong, and they're like, "Wow, that's our picture," you know. And well, King Kong kidnaps the main star and. They go off into the jungle, so then it becomes an adventure movie of tracking her down, right? Well, in that sequence of events, there's a lost scene where they fall into the spider trap, like a spider pit with gigantic spiders. People remember it. Like, I remember watching it in the early 2000s. Like, when I watched King Kong, I was like, wow, this is a special edition one, and now that scene is lost. Hmm. I'm like, I remember seeing that, though. I remember seeing those spiders and thinking, "Ooh, that's creepy, you know, like and and now they're saying, oh, yeah, it's been cut. No one no one knows about it now, it seems like people n- remember existed and says, oh, you know, it exists kind of like a Lon Chaney film. London After Midnight is one I've always wanted to see, but it's lost, you know, and and there's images from it and that's it. I don't know if it's that way with the spider sequence exactly because there's still like some images and people on, you know, that were interviewed in the 90s that said, yeah, we filmed it. You know, so (laughs) but you can't watch that movie with that scene in it. But I remember watching the movie with that scene in it. So I don't know what it was. I don't know if like it was a special Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson release, because I remember when he released his King Kong. Back in, what, early 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. He did release a special edition 30s one on VHS, or DVD at the time. And he may have filmed the Lost Spider sequence in the style of old movies, so it makes it seem like he put it back in. So I don't know. Like, I'd heard rumor of that at one point, but it's like, wow. So listeners, if you happen to know anything about the Lost Spider sequence from King Kong, please put it in the comments. Because I'm... I'm lost! (laughs) Ha! So, Kaiju movies, getting back, because we had King Kong, and then for a long time it was just the creatures and, you know, the horror movies, the gothic horror, Frankenstein, Dracula, and that sort of thing. And then Creature kind of leads us right back into the atomic age of Kaiju-type movies, and aliens, and the atomic age, right? Because you're, here you are, 50s. And we saw it in comic books. Space stories really became popular. Aliens, you know, that sort of thing. So, you People have,
1: were influenced by the power of science. Yeah. Bombs that could blow up entire cities.
0: Yeah, exactly. And matter of fact, that's why Godzilla came around. Right. And, and we'll get to that. In Japanese
1: pop culture it. was really drastically con- changed by it because they were the ones that were the victims. I was going to the say they were the victims. Right, yeah.
0: exactly. So first up, you had the thing from another world, which was John Carpenter, the thing, right? So he, you know, he redid it as the thing. <clears throat> And then you had the beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. That that is one I have not seen. I've seen plenty of clips from it. And being a kaiju fan, I should watch it at some point, but I have not seen it yet. Um, them I have seen, and that one's great. It's a gigantic ant movie. Uh huge ants just, and and they have this particular noise. Like remember the cicada noise in the trees? Oh yeah. Like it happens every oh, few yeah. years. It was a noise like that, and it signaled like these giant ants are nearby, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" So it was, it was just fun, you know, a little cheesy, but a little fun. Then you have Forbidden Planet. I have not seen that one, but you would recognize the robot from that one. Oh, for sure. Everybody recognizes the robot from that one, <clears throat> and I miss. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that robot became Danger Will Robinson. Danger, the Lost. Yeah, of Space it's robot. pretty much the same thing, isn't yeah. it? Pretty much. I mean, there's some slight differences, but. Um, The Blob. Now, I just watched this one a few years ago for the first time. That one is really unique, not just because of the storyline. I mean, it's kind of neat because it's this, you know, all-consuming blob (laughs) that goes through the town, right? What makes that one so unique is the teenagers... Everybody kind of looked at them like beatniks. Oh, teenagers, they don't know what they're talking about. And they kept trying to tell the authorities and parents and stuff. Just like, no, there's this consuming blob. It's going to kill us all. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, kid. Get out of here. And sure enough, it becomes bigger and bigger and consumes the town. And they're like, wow, the, the kids were right. You know? So that's why I think it was an important touchstone in the history of cinema as well. You know, It was like, oh, well. It's,
1: teenagers you know, starting to take a... And an important place in film. Yes, indeed. Uh, I remember watching the original Blob after watching the '80s remake, just to compare the two. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, that's a lot of fun. I'm I, I want to do that yet because I've not seen the newer '80s Blob, believe
1: it or not, <laughs> the newer one, the right? newer one, so to speak.
0: And I've not seen the thing, in the newer one either. So, and there's plenty of you can do that with. Uh, uh, Body Snatchers is another one. Mm-hmm. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There's yep. there's so many that they've redone like that. And maybe one day we'll have a special episode where we talk about redos, you know, like updated versions of comic books and originals versus reboots. Yeah. Good idea. I'd love to do that. So yeah, we'll do an episode like that. So world war of the Worlds is up there. Now the fly with Vincent price. I've not seen, but I love the Cronenberg version with Jeff Goldblum. So I I did the same
1: thing. I watched that version. Then I went back and watched the original.
0: So, and, and the original doesn't, I don't think it's as good as Jeff Goldblum's. But, no, yeah. Jeff Goldblum, come on. I mean, yeah, yeah, For ex- exactly. Now, jumping back, and that was in 1958. The fly was from 1958. So I purposely put the Catermass experiment from 1955 at the end of this, and this is why. Catermass experiment. Now, when I say experiment, listeners can't see what I'm looking at, so I'm going to explain it to them. Experiment is spelled with X-P-E-R-I-M-E-N-T. Not an E at the beginning. It's a giant X. The reason being, it is a British film. Now, British films at the time, they had a rated X. Now, don't think dirty, <laughs> mm-hmm. listeners. Please don't think dirty. Back then, rated X was the equivalent to r rated R, and it was one of the first films that was rated, got the actual X rating for theaters, right? So they were like, we're gonna lean into it and call it the experiment, the Catermass experiment, you know, and and they're leaning into it. You know, so I'm like, wow. And I watch it now and it's kind of tame, but sure. it is really well done. Like, it's so cool. Like, it's just, like, the basic plot is just amazing. Like, it's just, it just blows my mind. Even some of the makeup effects and such is great, but, yeah, I don't want to ruin it and have any spoilers. But it's about an astronaut who comes back to Earth with something. And that's where we're going to leave it. So I, I think that was my research team getting back to me, Zita Zita Johan. That's what (laughs) I. Um. So, Catermass experiment, amazing, really well done. But that was done by a small studio in Britain that you're probably familiar with, called Hammer or Hammer. Some people say Hammer. Some people call Hammer. I'm very
1: familiar with this horror studio now. Yeah. Yeah, I love Hammer.
0: Oh, good. And I believe your in-laws love Hammer. Yeah, yeah, my well. father in law is a huge fan. Yeah, your father-in-law, yeah. and even your mother-in-law likes him somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, meaning, speaking of which, I need to get together with them at some point. We talked about getting together several times just to watch these old Hammer horror movies because we love them. He probably has them all. Oh, yeah, yeah, so do I. It's, they're amazing. Now, one of the things that Hammer did is they approached Universal and said, hey, we want to do a version of Dracula. And, ho- and at that point, Universal's like no way, and part of the reason is they could they realized they had a powerhouse in syndication. Mm. They started releasing them on television with like the Saturday afternoon movies and such, and they're like, no, you cannot, and we don't want to get yours confused with ours, and yada yada yada. So, Dracula in 1958 is actually the tomb of Dracula. This is how it was released here in the U.S. in in the UK it was released as Dracula, but over here it was or the Blood of Dracula, but over here. It was the Tomb of Dracula or the Blood of Dracula, something like that. So Christopher Lee played Dracula, and Peter Cushing played Van Helsing. And it was really neat because it really featured bold Gothic sets and women in, well, what would be considered provocative clothing then, you know. And it was all done in a living color, you know, in full color. And that was unique at the time, too. As, remember, most Americans still had black and white TVs and black and white films, and you know, so it was like, oh man, the blood looked really red. Now I watch it nowadays, and I'm like, wow, that blood looks like tomato soup, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. no blood at all, you know. So because we're spoiled with our new effects and absolutely and, and we are. such, and we're kind of desensitized, but but that really led way to the powerhouse, the production powerhouse, if you will, of Hammer Studios. Which are still around, by the yeah, way. Yeah, they are, They're right? They're still making movies.
1: I looked them up recently because I ran across The Brides of Dracula. Yeah? And just decided to watch some of it a few weeks
0: back. Yeah, good good movie. Yeah. So Cater 2, not as good as the first one, I don't think, but it was good. Um, then they had Dracula in 1958 and The Revenge of Frankenstein in 1958. Then The Mummy in 1959 with Christopher Lee as the mummy as well. Now, this mummy was... Now, one of the things with Hammer, let me back it up. Hammer, <laughs> we talked about blood and 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 you know, action and such, and they're really groundbreaking. And they push the limits; they really push their boundaries. This mummy was so amazing. I mean, Christopher Lee was a hulking brute. Anyway, don't get me wrong; I'm not saying that as an insult. He was, he was what six foot four, pretty big guy, and you know he he was a big guy. And matter of fact, that's why they cast him as. Dracula and Ring of up. that's how he got into acting, was because he's a big guy and somebody saw him at a shopping center and was like, hey, have you ever thought about acting? But um, I digress. As the mummy, there's a scene where they run him through with a fire poker or a spear or something, and it goes through and you see this dust come out from the front instead of blood. That's still graphic, you know, with the dust. And he's, like, walking around with a on, and he's, like, fighting with a spear thrust through the middle of him in his torso. And then he's shot, like, five times. And you see these dust clouds, like, fly off of him and pieces go flying and stuff. And he's still living. Like, it's just really cool. Really cool. So very violent, very graphic, but not because it's dust instead of blood, you know, So because he's the mummy, you know. But it's just... That one gave me chills as well because like ooh that's cool. It you know, is cool. I wasn't freaked. I, like I wasn't like oh man that's scary. It was more of a oh that's just really cool. So you know moving into and that was like n- moving into the sixties a little bit. Now I don't know. Have you ever seen Scream of Fear from nineteen sixty one?
1: I may have, but I don't remember details.
0: It is very Hitchcockian. What did you say? It is very Hitchcockian. That's what I thought you said. Hmm. I watched it last year, and I've never seen it before. And it was so good. Very reminiscent of a Hitchcock-type film. It's it's in black and white. It's not in color, but the framing and the storyline and everything seems like a very long episode of Twilight Zone or... Like I said, Hitchcock, like a Hitchcock movie where, you're like, ooh, it's not really in your face scary, but it's a psychological terror. And you're like, ooh, this is twisted. <laughs> you know, hmm. so re- really well done. So if you are not seen it, check that one out. Maniac from 1963, I have not seen. I don't know much about that one at all, other than the title. It's called Maniac. <laughs> so we'll have to check that one out yeah, together. Right. Um, and there's so many others we could look up like Black Sunday and such, but then the evil of Frankenstein in 64. Now in the sixties, I'm going to step back. 1960, Alfred Hitchcock, speaking of Hitchcock, did release psycho. And I know you've seen that one.
1: Oh yeah. That's an all time classic. Yep. It is a classic.
0: And a lot of people believe that gave rise to the slasher movies that we'd known come to in the eighties, seventies, eighties, you know, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but I could see where they would think that.
1: Yeah, the shower scene, right?
0: Right. There's some there's some influence there, we'll put it that way. Well and never before Psycho we had not seen like a mass murderer on screen like that. Like we have not seen anything quite like that at the time. Now, fun fact Hitchcock knew that the it would be filmed in black and white. Because color was pretty expensive. hmm. And he used this is great for the shower scene, there was not a whole lot of blood and it's you know, they flash all these, you know, her navel and, you know, all this other stuff. But, and then you see the blood going down the drain. That is actually Hershey's chocolate syrup. <laughs> because on black and white film, it looks like blood. That's great. It was great. It was so well done then. I was like, oh, yeah. And it had the same consistency and everything. And I'm like, that's great. I I love it. So, and then the close-up on the eye, that you know, as she's dead. And it's just, oh.
1: That's awesome. So cool. I loved that movie. I remember seeing it. A lot of Hitchcock. Also, The Birds. That was another one of my Mm -hmm. favorite. And those really did frighten, but impact me, and and I enjoyed them as a kid.
0: Oh, same here. Matter of fact, Psycho was really groundbreaking in the time because it was one of the first films that gave the studio power over the theaters. Hitchcock said, I will not, unless you can guarantee me, you will not let anybody in the theater after the first five minutes, like after the movie started. I'm not going to give you the movie. So they actually had to sign a contract saying we will not let anybody in late wow. because the main headliner, and no one did this before, the main headliner, Janet Lee was killed off in the what the first 15 minutes or something like that. And you're like, what? And then you have the whole rest of the movie of them trying to figure out what the killer was and such. Nobody had killed off their main star that early on in the film. Oh, right. And Hitchcock wanted to keep that because huh. he'd be like, they would come in like, you know, 15 minutes late and not know what's going on. And, you know. That's great. So he made him sign a contract saying, "He will not. No, there will be no late arrivals." Period. So, I'm sure there were across the country. You can't control everybody, right?
1: Yeah, but that's still cool, though.
0: But it is still cool, and that actually that brings me to the gimmicks. Back to the gimmicks again. I don't. I don't have it on the list here, but William H. Castle definitely worth mentioning. Do you Do you know of any Castle movies? I I bet I you I know. know of
1: one. I probably do because the film. The name is familiar, but...
0: He did a House on Haunted, oh, Haunted Hill, which is amazing. Cool. But he was known for his gimmicks in the audience. There was a movie with uh, John Goodman. Oh, yeah. And you know the one yep. I'm talking about, where they had the buzzers in the seats? Oh, uh, What was the name of that?
1: I can't think of the name, but, you know, yeah. buzzers, seats move, water spray. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. William H. Castle was the inventor of most of that. Like, he... He really figured it out. There's one called, um, well, House on Haunted, Haunted Hill had a skeleton that would come out and fly over the audience. Hmm. And, I, man, I wish I could see the movies then, now, like they were then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, because I'm like, ooh, that'd be cool, you know, but there's nobody that. And he always had them, um, like, as a gimmick. He always named them. Like, see it in Mysterio Vision and things like that. It was like, oh, and nobody's like, oh, I wonder what Mysterio Vision is and stuff <laughs> like that, you know. So, I've been to a couple of films where they use uh, gimmicks like that, and it's
1: it's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: The skeleton one from House on Haunted Hill ended up going the, by the wayside because kids started throwing popcorn and candy and, and shooting it with slingshots and stuff, <laughs> so <laughs> they did away with that. But um, 13 Ghosts was another one of his, which was a redo at one point, but the one, and you can see it on YouTube in the manner it was supposed to be, they gave away special glasses during 13 Ghosts. Two pair. Red pair if you want to see the ghost. Blue pair if you do not. Hmm. And on YouTube you can see, and it'll switch back and forth between the two. and It's really neat. Because the way he filmed it was with special film that if you put on the red glasses, you'll see, you know, the the ghost standing there. And if you put on the blue, it, like, masks it out. It's kind of neat. But the other William H. Castle ones, there's the Tingler with Vincent Price. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Oh, that one's a classic, too. Now, one of the things he did... <laughs> this is where the John Goodman movie was inspired. He actually got de-icers for airplanes at the time that were decommissioned from World War II. Um, they would de-ice the, the wings by vi- vibrating, you know, and, and it was a small motor that would vibrate. Well, he bought them wholesale, and he hooked them under certain seats in the audience, not, not knowing which one, just random. And so when you would watch the movie. There's a scene in which is like, if you feel a a tingle, like that's a tingler, like scream, scream for your life. And that's the only thing that will destroy it and stuff. And at that point they'd hit the button and certain seats would go off and people Mm -hmm. would start screaming. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I am. Oh, I love it. And I wish I could see the tingler with, you know, like, but, and I think there might be an app that you can get for your cell phone to vibrate at that time. So, like, randomly, like, that would be cool, That's, right? That is cool. So, and I would love to see things more like that nowadays from studios, where they tie in an app where you download it for the movie you're going to watch. Like, Dungeons & Dragons just came out recently, and, you know, you and I both saw it. Not together, but we saw it. How cool would it be if they tied in an app to your phone to do something as you're watching the movie?
1: Or, or as you're watching it, at the very least, give you Easter eggs. Yeah. Did you see that spell? You can you can do this too if you want to be a player and it's on yeah you know it's on the PHB page two thirty one something mm-hmm. like that 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 that's actually a great idea
0: yeah oh yeah for sure so yeah gimmicks were kind of fun from William H Castle and that kind of wraps up the fifties moving into the sixties now sixties we talked about Psycho and such but they started becoming a little bit darker And comic books the same thing happened remember the you know in the seventies they really started doing hard hitting issues and and yep. such and things got darker now i'm i just put these two films on the list just because they are some of my favorites and vincent price how can you go wrong with vincent price I'm yeah right? he's terrific have you ever watched the abominable dr fives or dr fives rises again i don't know if i have okay oh, yeah. i'll give you the basic premise because this is what hooked me on these both these movies <clears throat> i went to church with a guy and he's like you guys haven't seen him oh it's great it's about this doctor whose wife dies in a car accident and he, like, she dies from the surgery, actually. And so all the surgeons he goes after with these traps. Mm. The first movie, it's based on the plagues of Israel, so to speak, loosely. Like, and he sets up these traps and weird ways to kill people. Like, like you remember that one of the plagues from Israel was the locusts, right? Oh, yeah. Well, he released a whole bunch of locusts in the guy's car or something, and it's just like, oh, my gosh, and they eat him alive. things like that you know it's just like these little traps like there's one in the second one there's a scene where like this beautiful lady's dancing for this archaeologist and she ties him and puts him in a scorpion type chair it looks like a giant scorpion and you know it's it got his wrist pinned down and stuff and she leaves and a stinger is coming to sting him and like there's these you know like this trap basically and, and it's gonna kill him Unless he can escape the chair, and the key for the chair is in a box not too far from him. Well, he smashes the box, or scorpions in it who sting him, and he dies anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. Okay, so so n- like n- spoiler free. I mean, that was a spoiler a little bit, but it's not. It does not give away the plot of the movie, so to speak. So sure, sure. So just instances of trickery and traps and such. Doctor yeah, Fives are is amazing. It's just really well done. The first one especially is really cool. So just fun, unique. There's some goofiness and campiness to it as well. My wife caught me watching them last year. She's like, "Why are you watching this?" I'm like, "Why not?" (laughs) Because they're fun, you know. Um, So Doctor Fives kind of ushers in the '70s horror era, but near the end of the '70s was really when we get into the slasher movies of the 80s, starting with 1978 with Halloween. It was a small, independent film. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, because it's one of my favorites. No one thought it would be a massive runaway hit that it became. Spawning many sequels. Spawning very many sequels, and really giving rise to the whole Lying slasher, thing. serial killer, Deranged maniac. A
1: lot of imitators.
0: So yes, yep. Friday the Thirteenth, you know. Friday the, the 13th, first
1: one. Yeah. Let's let's copy yeah. what they did with this movie Halloween and make yeah. some bucks.
0: Yep, and instead of setting it in suburbia, we'll set it in a camp, old campground. There you go. So there's that one. But for a while, I subscribed to the Shutter streaming service. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but having young kids, you probably wouldn't want to subscribe yeah. anyway. But there is a phenomenal, and I think they're making a part three actually. There's a phenomenal documentary called um, In Search of Darkness, and there's two parts. Each part is like four hours long, and they go film by film talking about these movies. And it's the creators of the movies and the stars of the movies Mm -hmm. talking about different ones. And it's really cool to see, like, Heather Langenkamp from from Nightmare on Elm Street. Seeing her talk about, you know, Friday the 13th or Halloween, it's kind of neat. Yeah. You know, even though she was in Nightmare, you know, like, and then she'll talk about Nightmare a little bit. But it's just so cool. Like, those, both those documentaries are really good. And I believe they're doing a third one. Oh, wow. So well, they, they go film by film. And they name a lot of them. I mean, it's just, I don't think they can be all inclusive just because there's so many out there.
1: Yeah, in the 80s there were a ton. I mean,
0: we were t- just talking prior to recording. We were just talking about House with William Catt and George Went and um, Richard Mall. Yeah, that one is available on Pluto, I believe, uh, maybe Tubi, but House and House Two were just loved them. They were great. They're so cheesy, and I watched it a couple weeks ago. Actually, my daughter was like, "Why are you watching this?" I'm, like, "Cause it's fun," <laughs> you know. I'm like, "Look how cheesy it is. It's hilarious, you know. It's, it's awesome." So yeah, It's so bad it's good. That's thing. right. You know, back then it was great. I remember watching it when it came out, and I was like, "Wow, this is amazing." But now I'm for like, wow, sure. I can't believe I liked this.
1: <laughs> for sure. They were just great. I, my friends and I, we had a tradition. Just about every Friday night, somebody would come over and or a few or a couple would come over and stay all night at my house. And would, whoever was coming over would rent a couple of movies, a couple of horror movies. And for the longest time, every Friday night, we'd watch a couple of 1980s horror movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's take a step back to the 70s real quick. Well, no, actually, it was 1980. It was, it was not late 70s. It was eight, early 80s. It was 1980 when this came out. I don't have it on the list. And it really shaped horror movies for me because it was the first true horror movie I saw, so to speak, when I was younger. Like, I grew up in a strict Baptist household that was like, oh, those are the devil. Don't watch those, you know. And, and my buddy and I, sure enough, we went and rented some movies to watch in my room. Over a weekend and he's like, You've never seen The Shining? <laughs> I'm like, No. And he goes, Okay. I kid you not around. I was like in my bed with like the covers up to my chin, like, oh man, oh man, oh and I'd like cover my eyes sometimes and I'm just like that the fir- that was the first time I watched it. Now the for the fortieth time that I've watched it, I'm in bed with the covers falling out of my eyes. No, but it's to this day, there's something about that movie that sets me on edge a little bit.
1: Oh, it's it's a spooky one for sure. It's
0: spooky, but it just there's little things. There's a phenomenal another great documentary called Room two thirty seven, where they talk about the mythos of the shining in the mm. movie The Shining. There's so many th- fan theories and theories out there and stuff. And matter of fact, they did this in the documentary. They took remember the opening with the vast open spaces and the scenery and such it ends the same way with vast open spaces and scenery and such. And, and they said it it's a mirror, the film is a mirror image of itself and you lay them over top and play one beginning to end and end to beginning and lay it over top of each other. It mirrors itself kind of. It's like so weird. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the theories. Another theory is like, well, the, the hotel represents a labyrinth and there's a minotaur, which would be Jack and, you know, like all this other stuff. Like, sure. it is just so weird. Like, and they're like, and this is, represented in this ski poster that's in the game room you could see that has the symbolism and the imagery is evocative of a minotaur and i'm like okay that's a little bit of a stretch you know like there's certain things are a little bit of a stretch
1: what i always liked about the shining and same thing for pet cemetery particularly the novels even more so than the films but it always seemed like haunted fatherhood to me Mm -hmm. what happens if you lose your you know what Mm-hmm. Um, what happens to the rest of your family you've got all these responsibilities and uh, duties and things that you have to live up to but what happens if everything falls apart mm-hmm. and that's a real nightmare for for men who oh, take yeah. their their roles as a father and as a husband seriously so those two films they always got me they I loved them when I was younger but once I became a father I find them difficult to watch
0: same here like I do find them difficult to watch now there's certain things that i I was telling the kids about them like the shining and they're like Okay, why is it so spooky? And I'm, there are certain things that are purposely done to set you on edge. Like there, in some of the soundtrack stuff, there are certain noises and and, and frequencies that are uneasy to a human, right? Mm-hmm. But there's one scene in particular that, when it, it was pointed out to me, freaked me out because they showed the clip of the scene. I was like, "Oh man, it's not even a scary scene with like the blood coming out of the elevators or Jack chasing them with the act." No, no, no but it's very uneasy. It's very unsettling. And that is when Danny is laying in the one room watching TV and you see the hardwood floor and the TV's framed by that gigantic bay window Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and he's watching cartoons, right? If you look closely at that scene as a whole and you pause it when it's on the TV, you see this small TV in this huge window. The TV is not plugged in.
1: Ooh.
0: (laughs) That gives me chills. (laughs) Like, yeah, like, and when it was pointed out to me, I was like, no. Oh, my gosh. The TV's not plugged. Oh, that's creepy. That is creepy. So there's little things like that that really mess with you after the fact. You know, you're like, oh, wow. Like, watching it the first time, you probably never notice that. Like, there's so many, so much stuff in there. Kubrick was a genius with that. It's like with Easter eggs, right? And that type of hidden meaning thing. And that's one of them. It was like the TV's not even plugged in. Ooh, ooh, ooh! <laughs> you know, like, that's crazy. That's so crazy, and I feel so bad for she- Shelley Duvall. You know, because <laughs> c- 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 of the making of it, but you know, it really messed her up for years. She had to step away from acting and such. But yeah, just shining, amazing, phenomenal movie. Room 237 is a documentary. Check it out. But yeah, we got uh, we got through most of the decades of horror. I think. we sure did. Uh, All in one podcast. There is another podcast out there, folks, if you enjoy horror movies and sci-fi movies and such, uh, particularly horror. There's one called Decades of Horror, the Classic Era, and it goes from 30s all the way up through 70s and 80s for horror movies, and it talks about one movie per episode. It is really well done, and I really like the Decades of Horror Classic Edition. been a while since I've listened to it, but it's very well done. So a little cross promotion there, if you will. (laughs)
1: well just like king kong at the top of the empire state building our time is up
0: if you like what you heard and uh enjoyed it then follow us on facebook and instagram and there you will find a link for the patreon and how to get exclusive merch hey and don't forget to like and subscribe until next time
1: play on nerds